Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The streams of winter. Live stream 16. Hello and welcome to the Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much for tuning into our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a character who serves, obeys and watches in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. It's Ario Hotar, everyone. He is the Norvoshi-born captain of Doran Martell's personal guard. Following the release of Ariane's first sample chapter, it was confirmed that the Winds of Winter will find him on a mission into Dane territory with Obara Sand and Sir Balon Swan in search of Gerald Dane, Darkstar. What does fate have in store for him in the Winds of Winter? To help me answer these questions and more, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hello, hey everybody. Thank you for being here today. Uh, we are so happy to be back to the Streams of Winter series uh, and kicking it off in this new year with a whole new region. Uh, we're going to Dorne for this and our upcoming streams, a place we've never really covered. So this is exciting. And today, to help us dive deep into Ariohota is Joe Buckley returning from the Isle of Faces podcast. Welcome back, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. Good to see you both, both are well. Thank you. Yes, we are. And uh, yeah, just looking forward to moving ahead with this stuff. So all that said, we'll go over to you, Yoke Boy, to uh, get things started. Okay, so I've cooked up some questions to ask these guys and answer myself as well. All of it Dornish related to Area Hotar. So let's begin. Despite being so close to the centre of the Dornish court, Area Hotar views Dorn through an outsider's eyes as we're continually reminded of his Norvoshi origins. What parts of his backstory are pertinent to his situation in Dorn, and what meaning is there to the fact that he is an outsider? So I think I'll begin 
I think Aereo being Norvoshi is done for a few reasons. First of all, he provides a contrast with the Dornish. He thinks of the wanton Dornish women and so on. In this respect, it makes him a fish out of water with a very different background from any of the Dornish characters that we get to know. This uh, creates a contrast and gives us a more interesting character than simply Dornish Guardsman number 87, which George could have gone along with. Also, with no innate ties to the Dornish culture, it puts the emphasis on his servitude. Here is a guy serving Doran Martell without the inherent interest in Dorn that a Dornish guard would have. The fact underlines that this guy is living purely to honour his position and his vows. Maybe George will test that metal later on in the story, as he's done with the other characters of honour, from Ned Stark to Baristan. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I think you're, you're dead on there. I think you can even extrapolate it out to him being so very different, but he is also very similar in some ways to Duran, and they kind of make the perfect pair, to be honest, and they're both silent, they're both patient, they're both calm. Aereo having zero personal ties to anything that Duran plots makes him the perfect captain or right-hand man, whatever you want to call him, but so does that general temperament and personality. How far would Duran have really gotten with all these secret plans if he does have someone who wants to peek over his shoulder, who does want to gossip about it later that day when he's off duty or anything like that? So you sure his background is key for that, as is his similarity of Duran. But the difference between them comes in that the end at the end of it all, it will be very personal, will be very passionate for one of them, while the other remains removed and silent in Hotai, at least that's what we're guessing. As for his specific history of being sold and, and branded as a child, that's a really great connection, I think, to the themes of slavery and all that kind of thing that we'll get through the two books, especially Dance that um, Hotel appears in, and it's probably going to come up in wins as well. And other than Melisandre, we don't really get to see the that end of the spectrum of slavery, of like, it happening a long, long time ago. We get more of it in the present, so that's quite a good, just a different way to look at it, I think. Yeah, I think um, you both made very good points about Ario, because he has no connection to Dorne, other than Doran and his family. He's relatively neutral about Dorn itself and kind of Dornish politics, which makes him a really great observer. His uh, greatest allegiance, of course, is to his duty. And so we don't really get to see any of that inner struggle that others in his position wrestle with. People like Barristan Selmy, Jamie Lannister, Aerys Oakhart, <clears throat> of course, who is specifically contrasted with Aereo. Uh, even Jon Snow has to decide if his loyalties lie with his family and the region he came from or with the order that he pledged to serve. So that's a real ongoing theme. Um, by contrast, even though we don't really get his point of view, um, look at similarities that Aereo has to someone like Grey Worm, who's an outsider captain whose loyalties lie solely with the person that he serves. Which leads us to that point Joe raised about the theme of slavery as an unwanted youngest son sold into servitude to the local religion. Ario's experience is probably a lot closer to characters like Melisandre, who you mentioned, and uh, Thoros of Mir, who had the same experience sold to the Red Temple. Uh, then he is to Grey Worm, uh, who's stolen violently from his home. But there's a lot to explore there, and it's something that it definitely 
hope and imagine that George will capitalize on as he takes his character forward. Okay, so some good answers there. And the Dornish POV structure is a little bit scattered, isn't it? You have a single Aries Ocart chapter, two Ario chapters, and then two for Ariane. Some critics comment that Ario is little more than a fly on the wall or a sort of plot enabler. Why do some people think this? Do you think this assessment is really fair? And if not, what would you offer as a rebuttal to this claim? Lady Gwyn. Well, I think a, a lot of people um, do think this. It's it, In spite of the brief background that we get of his life, he is pretty two-dimensional. His second point of view chapter is literally called The Watcher. So it's obvious why people think that, I think. Uh, what's interesting is that it seems clear that George really felt the need to have multiple point of views in Dorne for the same offense. The Dornish uh, chapters there all take place in a relatively short period of time, but there's four of them, three different point of view characters, five of them rather. So, you know, you're, you're giving, you're not going to give Doran Martell a point of view. <laughs> That's not an option because he's a schemer and we need to keep him hidden. So having his close companion uh, as a viewpoint is a pretty good substitute. I think it was a great choice. And as I said, and we'll be discussing more shortly, there's a lot of opportunity here to move Ario Hota beyond passive observer to becoming a more multifaceted character. Yeah, I agree. Firstly, I just like the structure of the question because I like talking about how many different POVs there are and where they are almost as much as I like actually reading them. But as to the actual question itself, he's definitely a living, breathing camera. There's no two ways about it. Now, he might become more than that, but so far... The biggest action or decision we've ever had from him in taking on Eris Okar actually came in someone else's POV, not even his. And we do get little glimpses of his thoughts and feelings and personality, but his main function is inarguably as a camera. And it's, to be fair, it's not like he's alone in this. Other characters do that too. They have great long passages, pages long, where you forget whose POV you're even in. And this is probably recency bias for me because we're in dance over on the R at the moment, but I'm thinking of Theon, and I'm thinking of Asher, and I'm thinking of Tyrion. They all have those type of passages. And for those guys, it's probably because of those their respective positions where they're either prisoners or slaves. They're not as um they don't have the freedom to be as proactive as normal, so they're kind of stuck, they have to watch. The difference is normally uh, for other characters, when they stop being a camera, they get to go and do something of their own, whereas Hotar hasn't so far. He's purely camera. He's the one that keeps rolling the most. But to be fair, um, I think we do have to be fair to him that, okay, he's presented in a different way, but that doesn't make his chapters worse. It just makes them different. He has two really, really strong chapters that I really like. He's got a lot of responsibility in them. He's the third chapter in A Feast for Crows and has to open up this entirely new aspects of storytelling for George as well as a plot as well as setting as well as characters and everything else and he also has to be the bridge between that plot um between feast and winds in one single chapter again so he's got a really really hard job and he he does it pretty well so it will give him his um we'll give him his his due I think I'm gonna have to agree with you guys that Ario Hota at this point to this juncture is a little two-dimensional 
But we have to consider that the guy has only had a couple of chapters and that his story is certainly not done to really bring Aereo to life. George will have to bring in more character depth from his Norvosi backstory. He'll have to toy with the theme of honour and vows and servitude and give the character himself more active plot points. So I'm going to reserve my full judgment of this fly on the walk until we read those Winds of Winter chapters. And I'm hoping George will really justify this guy's inclusion as a POV and change all of our minds. To analyse what's been missing so far, I think that we're lacking... Ario wanting something, you know, as his, as a human being, what does he really want? Sure, he serves and obeys, and that is presented as his want, but I want George to go deeper than this to find out what is his true heart's desire. When you think about Ned, who is presented as this honourable character, but as we got to know him, you realise, for example, that children more important to him than that and you know his real want was in some instance were to protect children and that sort of trumped his honor so i would like to see what ario really wants as a character otherwise i think that he is going to be mechanical and we'll get that two-dimensional feeling okay so we've talked about ario a bit but i want to take a, a brief minute to comment on the lone Aries Oakart chapter. As a POV, the poor dude was basically a plot device and came and went from the story so quickly he didn't even get a dedicated live stream. <laughs> R.I.P. Aries Oakart. Lady Gwyn, what do you have to say about this lone chapter? And I mean, is, is he even more of a fly on the wall than Aereo? <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, one of the things... Joe just alluded to that. We we love to think about why things are done structurally in the story, you know, we, as much as we love to read the story and analyze it. Why does George put this chapter here, put this point, point of view in this certain situation? And why did he even bother giving Ares Oakhart a viewpoint for one single chapter? He will remain the only point of view character outside of uh, prologues and epilogues to only have one chapter, since we are uh, guaranteed that Melisandre will have more in The Winds of Winter. So why? I mean, in Ariane was in 95%, maybe more, of that chapter. The only part she wasn't in is in well, he, the very first couple of paragraphs while he's walking to meet her. She could easily have been the point of view, right? But... One way of looking at it is that he is very similar to a prologue character in a lot of ways. He's His chapter reveals quite a bit about the upcoming storyline, gives us a window into a character who's going to become very important. And this is really similar, I think, to Crescent's chapter. Using Ares as our first close-up of Ariane is both an effective way of fleshing out a character who really only got a kind of drive-by in that first uh, Ario Hota chapter, and also a way of, this kind of probably is stating the obvious, but a way of obscuring what she was up to at the time. 
which is important, maintaining the mystery of her plotting and what the reasons behind it are and all that. So it turns out he actually um, was a very important point of view <laughs> character. Yeah, I definitely, I'm one of those people that thinks about Eris Oakheart, or Mr. Reach, as I like to think of him, because I pronounce him and the king's name too similarly. Uh, I think about him way too often. I just mentioned to Yoke Boy before we came on that while writing the notes for this, I kind of looked up and realised, oh, I've done two pages full of Eris Oakheart. We're not talking about Eris Oakheart. I need to move back to, to Hotar. But uh, I agree with you, Lady Gwyn. The, the main reason is definitely, I think, it's to show the reader Ariane from the outside view first, because that's uh, how she projects her skills. It's a masterclass of manipulation. You can really see why she's so good at this and how she's so good at this, and it introduces another player to us. It builds her up as capable and motivated and, and striking in many different ways before we get her POV and actually find uh, she is quite flawed. She does have mistakes. She's actually uh, well, three-dimensional. She's human. Um, and like and like you say, there's just too many plots in this area. You don't want to give them all away. You don't want to give them uh, straight up with your first POV. It's much better, and George does kind of like to do this in um, giving us the view via the manipulated rather than the manipulator. I think you see him kind of change change decision on that as the series go through, goes um, goes on. He starts off more of the manipulator and then changes up. But there's all, there's other reasons to include Eris Hogarth. I think George just likes writing the fish out of water. I think Yoke Boy mentioned that earlier. Um, he likes writing about knights. The guiltier, the better. So uh, Eris Hogarth fits really well in that. And it's just adding to the reach theme that we really, really get in Feast. Even though it's this major area of all these players, in the first three books, we get this like quick 10-minute journey with Catelyn, but that's about it. And then in Feast, we have... A prologue in Old Town, and then Sam's coming to Old Town, and then Victorians in the Shield Islands. Um, we're meeting more Reach people via Brienne and Sam, and the Tyrells are a bit more fleshed out. So George is really opening up that area to us, as well as Dawn, and um, I, Ares is just a, po a part of that. But then again, I also think it's an intentional move to have Ares follow Aereo in the Dornish lineup. Ares first, then Ares is next, because... Aria Hotar is what Eris is supposed to be as a Kingsguard. He's supposed to be still and silent and not get involved whatsoever unless he's ordered to. And his downfall is that obviously he gets really, really involved where he shouldn't. And, uh, and that's the problem. He's supposed to be part of the background. And George's whole thing about several of these organizations, or several of these organizations rather, or these background people, is that they're, they're not furniture. They're not background people. They have their own passions and um and people they want to link up with and sing, stuff like that Aereo is the exception he's not the rule so everyone else like Oakheart is uh, is just to prove that so i think that's a really good way to set up Aereo. okay and in the captain of the guards george brings the audio audience's attention to the fact that Aries and Aereo are names that sound alike the captain frowned. Sir Ares had come to dawn to attend his own princess, as Ario Hotar had once come with his. Even their names sounded oddly alike, Ario and Ares. This seems to me a purposeful attempt to encourage the reader to compare these two warriors in parallel. 
So, and following on from what Joe was saying, what are the similarities between Aries and Aereo? And what also are the key differences between the two men, Lady Gwyn? I just want to point out that that passage actually continues, yet there the likeness ended. The captain had left Norvos and its beaded, not beaded, bearded priests, but Sir Aries Oakhart still served the Iron Throne. So George explicitly invites us to compare and contrast these characters uh, who serves, serve roles that are very similar, um, as you just said. So, um, yeah, what do you think, Joe? Yeah, yeah, very Well, I'll do the differences first. And I think the biggest difference is actually how they got into this similar type role. They've ended up in the same place, but come from very, very different directions. Like we mentioned earlier, Aria was sold into it as a child. He was branded. That was his whole life and purpose right from then up until adulthood. And he was forged into this tool and absolutely melded. He was even married to his oath and his axe. And okay, according to the world book, Ares dreamed of being uh, part of the Kingsguard when he was a child, but it's not quite the same level of dedication. You get the sense he took a fairly comfortable route to it. There's a little bit of a sense of privilege there with Ares. Don't forget how um, Sansa presented him to us in Clash of kind of like he's kind of like the frat guy who's just kind of fallen into the job because of his name and he he looks right he's got the right smile and everything else but when you actually look like most reach characters uh, a bit of the substance might be lacking he gets too involved in the court gossip and stuff like that whereas Ario is obviously the complete opposite on that so they've just been forged differently but one of the main similarities I think that stands out is just how they were both astounded when they arrived in Dawn because of the food, because of the weather, because of the people. And we hear that from both of them, and then we'll get to see it with Balon Swan later on when he comes to Dawn. And you'd think, I think we fall into a trap, well, I know I do a lot of the time. Anyone who comes from Essos, you think they're all coming from marine-type um, climates, where it's all sunny, it's similar to Dawn, but that's that's not the case. He comes from Norvos, it's quite northern. It's uh, not similar to Dawn at all, so he's just the same as Balon and Ares. You, you might be well-travelled, but the cool thing about Dawn is it's just completely different. You can go to basically everywhere else in the Seven Kingdoms, but if you haven't been to Dawn, there's nothing to prepare you for it. So this, it's just a really cool area. It's another good reason to open up these chapters. Yeah, great points. And I guess them sort of contrasting, whoever goes there, contrasting with a place, allows George to comment on it and, you know, world-build just by them saying, oh, you know... The food is so different, it allows him to sort of describe the food then. So yeah, it's interesting to think of it from a writer's point of view. And Ario eventually kills Sir Aris with a fair amount of ease. It has to be said, slicing through his arm with his long axe before sending his head spinning into the reeds of the green blood. Now that we've compared the two, what is the overall message of their connection and how exactly was Ares's death prefigured, Lady Gwyn? Well, it's really prefigured, right? That same passage where we're referring to, where it continues. Otad felt a certain sadness whenever he saw the man in the long snowy cloak. The times the prince had sent him down to Sunspear. One day, he sensed, the two of them would fight. On that day, Okart would die with the captain's long axe crashing through his skull. Well, his long axe didn't crash through his skull. It went right through his neck. But other than that, he was pretty bang on. And, you know, I guess the message is 
it was, you know, that there is a connection here. I think that we're, we're going to talk about it later. There's something else that comes up in that same chapter, but I think that this one uh, is meant to make us pay attention to something else that's prefigured in that same Ariohota Hota chapter. Cryptic, I know. <laughs> <laughs> when comparing these two, I know that was in the last question, I didn't comment. So this really follows on from that discussion. I think the passages where we learn that Ario sleeps with his axe are quite pertinent. He is fully wedded to his position as a guardsman. It's not subtle and doesn't seem the sort to be tempted to break his concentration by betraying his vows or bedding women or anything like that. This is a contrast to Ares, who should be fully focused like Ario, as Joe said, but allows himself to be seduced by Ariane, manipulated, and is ultimately caught off guard. Being the more resolute and determined in his position, it was telegraphed early that Ario was always going to defeat Ares, and choosing to sleep only with his weapon is indicative of the difference between the men that cost Ares his head. What do you think, Joe? I think that's a great point, that kind of choice of what's really going to matter to you when it really comes down to it. And it's that it's not an easy life to be an area hotel. You've got a, uh, the, he's a one in a million. You've got to really be into it 100%. And like you say, it turned out that Ares wasn't. Uh, just to kind of broaden it out from just Ares, while we're noting uh, Hotar's ability to analyse fighters, which is always a cool part of the of the book. Whenever you see one fighter see another, it's always good to see them uh, kind of talk about one another. But in Hotar's case, he, he foreshadows the result of their dueling, like we've just said. I just want to mention that that foreshadowing that he does several times, it's never, it's never boastful, it's never based in arrogance or ego, it's just kind of fact-based. He believes or he knows that he is better than them, better than them, and so far he's turned out to be right. He fought about Ares, he's fought about Ibarra, and he allows that Balon Swan will be harder, like we will talk about later, but he still thinks he'd win in the end. And to me, it'd be really interesting if he does ever come up against someone, maybe Darkstar, for example, because he's not actually come up against him yet, we haven't got his thoughts. If he comes up against someone and he knows, oh, actually, I'm not as good as that person, because again, he's fact-based, he's straight to the point, he says, oh, they might actually beat me. And then if he gets in a situation where he might have to choose to fight anyway, and we get a kind of uh, no chance, no choice Brienne slash moment of him sticking to his O's, even though he knows it might cost him, that would be a pretty cool moment. I'd vote to watch uh, to read that one. And in that same chapter, before thinking of Ares's death, Hotar had a confrontation with Obara Sand and thinks, quick and strong as she was, the woman was no match for him, he knew, but she did not, and he had no wish to see her blood upon the pale pink marble. Given the way his thoughts about Oakheart became reality, as Joe just outlined, and the fact that Obara and Hotar seem to be linked together in the narrative somehow, can we view anything in this chapter as potential foreshadowing of trouble between the two in the Winds of Winter? So I, I go, I'll go. I think it's certainly possible that Obara and Hotar come to blows at some point. It will be very interesting to gauge how they relate in the very first Ario Winds of Winter chapter. I'll be looking out for that. 
but we must remember the POV conundrum that George has faced with Dawn. If if Hotar died too early, who is left to show us future events? That works in his favour. So perhaps we'll see conflict between those two further down the line, perhaps even into A Dream of Spring. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I think, well, I'm going to cheat a little bit and kind of miss out Obara here because you, you've got me thinking about these future events and what uh, Hotel is just worth if we're going to talk about that POV structure again and how George has to use his POVs. He's only got so many in certain areas and as we say, that's kind of it in Dawn. So he might need it. And I've always thought or hoped that whatever that happens on this mission, he will get back to Sunspear, uh, whether that mission was successful or not, specifically because we want, or I want to see him get back to Duran to see his reactions to the news of Quentin or the news of it actually being supposedly Aegon, uh, Aegon the Sixth back up in King's Landing or hearing what the Sand Snakes have done. I want to be in the room to see that, to see what his plan has actually brought him. And I also really want him to see Marcella again. We've already had too much time away from her. I don't want her to just be left out. So if we get a quick glimpse of her, that'd be great. And sure, most of that could be handled via correspondence with Ariane, but that's nowhere near as good, is it? So I've got crossed fingers that whatever happens, he does survive and does get back. And I also really like Sunspear, so I don't want to leave that because no one else is going there anytime soon unless Daenerys really, really hurries up. Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, to back up to what you said about Ario in the last question, he, he has this sort of serene confidence in his abilities. It's, you know, he's very certain of himself. So, you know, if it does come to blows between Obara and Hota, which uh, I feel pretty strongly that based on the structure of the Captain of the Guards, his first chapter, where it's, you know, he has these thoughts about Ares Okart, and then he has the same sorts of thoughts about Obara. I think we're meant to notice that. Uh, But I, I think, you know, Ario is the one who's going to survive if it ever came down to a choice between the two, because he is going to be our window onto Dorne. If we lost him, Doran's character would be reduced to this sort of epistolary footnote. Like you said, it, we'd have to be have, seeing his messages to Ariane, and he would literally become two-dimensional. And so would the rest of the Dorne storyline. And Given George's very strong comments that Dorne is going to be quite different in the books than it was in the show, I truly, truly doubt that he's going to take that route, that he's going to just introduce this, you know, do this big setup and then be like, oh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> we'll just, we'll get a raven from there every now and then. So, yeah, I, I think Ariel's going to be with us for a while. And um, that you know, well, I've already said the, the likelihood of conflict between those two is, is I think, very made really clear in the swiftness with which his parallel thoughts about Ares Okart actually played out. I mean, it was, oh, someday I'm going to kill that guy. And then the next time you see him on page, he's killing that guy. <laughs> so I think we should really take note of Obara. She's she's angry. She's truculent. And uh Come winds of winter, I'm going to be watching their interactions pretty closely. Yes, me too. And getting down to the business of Area Hotar in the winds of winter, it's a very exciting prospect to think about what he will see and who he will become going forward. But the winds of winter is a crowded field, as we all know, and point of views will be fighting 
for page space, really. So how many chapters do we imagine Ario Hotar will have, Lady Gwyn? I know you've thought about this quite a bit. So what do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, here's what we know so far. Um, before publishing A Dance with Dragons, George told Bran that he was moving three Dornish chapters to the Winds of Winter. And we've seen two of them, Ariane 1 and 2. So we can probably assume that uh, the third one was another Ario Hota chapter. He's, George has confirmed that he was still hadn't written Ariane 3, uh, as far as I'm pretty sure. So he's also said that there are going to be no new point of view characters going forward. So obviously, we're, that's where our confidence that Ario Hota will continue as a viewpoint comes from. This it all makes sense because Arianne is off to the Stormlands starting in that very first sample chapter. She leaves Dorne and, you know, she's probably not going to be back for a while. Uh, so I think this is really hinting at multiple chapters for Ario since we really don't have anyone else in that region. George has mentioned working on Ario and visiting Dorne just in 2020, which seems to further confirm multiple chapters for Ario. So given all of the above, I would say at least two are confirmed by George, that one that he moved 10 years ago into the Winds of Winter from Dance with Dragons, and one that he's likely been, at least one that he's been working on recently. But probably, I I think that there will be more than two, possibly as many as four. It is going to be a crowded book, but I think when you think about all the things that have to play out or that we expect might play out in his point of view, he's going to be our point of view to the Danes, you know, back with Doran, uh, anything, a lot of anything that's happening in Dorne, depending on where Arianne ends up after that meeting with John Connington in Arianne 3. Uh, I think that will be the biggest indication of how much Ariohota will get in the rest of the novel. Yeah, I've got to agree. Well, first, I just love all the structure talk and how many chapters we're getting. I think that's my obsession. I do agree. I think Hotar will beat his career high of one. I think he's at least guaranteed two, but I could easily see that jumping up to three or four, very much so, um, especially considering George's apparent focus on it right now and that, like you say, he's going to have some really, really big stuff to cover. He's going to have the material for four Hotar chapters if he really wants it. And not to jump around on the questions, but I think if we do get that many, then he really is going to have to break away from pure camera mode more than we have so far anyway. I can't really think of a a POV, even an epilogue or prologue character who hasn't had their heart in conflict or been presented with a choice, like you were saying earlier, Yoke Boy. So that's going to have to happen at some point. We have to have some of that now, some breaking of the shell, because four chapters of, of just camera action would feel odd. And to be fair... George has left himself a lot of space where he can do that. Considering he's been so re- restrained now, the further he's got, the more, uh, the less gardening he can do, the more he has to kind of obey the plot. So he's kind of left himself a little a little treat here in Hotel where he hasn't built anything up too much. He can kind of do whatever he wants with him, at least personality-wise, even if not plot-wise, which isn't true for every other POV. So he might even be focusing on him so much because it's actually nice to have that ability again, like he used to in the old books. Um, so yeah, he's still fairly wide open as a character and George might get to indulge a bit, which would be nice. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I think, as we've seen, George crams a lot into the Dornish chapters. So far, they've been pretty long chapters and have covered a lot of plot ground within them. I think four Aereo chapters sounds about right, three or four maybe, but expect them to be packed with significant plot points that make you feel like there's more than four, which is the same feeling that I've always had about these Dornish chapters. I'm sometimes surprised that there's only these many chapters in Feast and Dance. We know Ariane is away and we know there's no new POVs, as Lady Gwynne said, so there's a real importance on Ario here. I struggle to see him getting perhaps more than four, given that the Dornish chapters are always compressed pretty well. And that, as we mentioned, there is real competition for chapter space amidst so many other significant POV characters and likely major events and plot points and so on. The battles in the very early stages of the Winds of Winter alone are going to eat up a lot of page space, and that's before we've really got going, so to speak. I speculate that this fight for pages might be one of the great problems that George is currently facing with the production of this book. But certainly you would hope that there's significant Dornish plot threads to be followed with both Ariane and our boy Ariahota. Let me, let me add on to you that, Yoke Boy, you say about uh, the Dornish chapters feeling like more than four. We get that throughout Dance, I think. I think George has kind of mastered the three, four chapter arc with Bran, with Davos, with Quentin, they all, I always think there's more of them than there actually are. So yeah, I think you could absolutely see that of Hotar again. So that's a, that's a great point. Okay, so now let's talk about Ario Hotar's mission with Obara and Balon Swan. This could be really exciting, guys. Ostensibly, Doran has sent this trio in search of Darkstar to bring justice to him for the attack on Princess Marcella. Could there be another secret goal of this mission? If so, who or what is involved? And just give us your general thoughts on this mission, Lady Gwyn. Well, I think about, you know, two distinct possibilities, very much of a um, devil's advocate kind of thinker when I'm trying to figure out which way George is going, usually. 
So one being that Dorian intends for Balon Swan to never return from this mission to Western Dorne because he wants to prevent the possibility of any hint of what really happened to Marcella reaching King's Landing. So uh, along these lines, there is also a strong possibility that Dorian wants to punish Balon Swan for his role in the planned murder of Tristane. But there's also another possibility, which is that... Doran more or less openly believes that Swan and Darkstar will take care of each other and that his real goal is to give Obara a lengthy mission in order to keep her, a potentially troublesome character, away from Sunspear. And one thing to keep in mind is that Hota has a demonstrated history of conducting clandestine missions for Doran. Arresting the Sand Snakes, foiling Ariane's plot, are those are the ones we see in his brief time on page. He's efficient, he's utterly trustworthy, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if we continue to see him conducting covert business for his prince. Yeah, you can easily, or you definitely persuaded me, I think we can definitely see Hotar doing that if it's really, really well. If I, I can shift the goalpost just a little bit to Duran's motivation in general not just for this mission with obara but the the free overall of the sand snakes i think his motivation might actually be although there's lots of practical elements that he needs kind of people in certain places and he's had to choose these three perhaps even subconsciously i think duran might be trying to replace his own family in some ways he is a man who's dealt with a lot of loss throughout his years and he's had to hold back on doing anything about it so that makes sense and maybe he's juggled around the roles a little bit now, but first off, I think maybe he was planning for Ariane to be the new Elia and going off to marry a Targaryen, and then Quentin would become the new him, and you're missing an Oberyn, but that's all he had at that time, so I just think there's some kind of subconscious replacing of what's been lost there, and obviously that had to switch when Danny appeared, and the roles had to switch between the brother and sister there, but the point remains the same, so now, maybe against his better judgment, He's slotting the Sand Snakes in to be that new Oberyn for him. We kind of saw that, we even said as much, basically, in The Watcher in Dance. And I've been thinking about kind of um, projection a lot lately. That's mainly for Jorah and Tyrion, just where we are in Dance over on, over on the aisle. And that's love-based projection. But Duran is doing the same thing now with the Sand Snakes. He's trying to place them into Oberyn-shaped holes, even though they might not necessarily fit, but they're the best he's got. And it, like I say, that's half because he needs them and he does have these missions and he doesn't want them getting into other types of trouble. So maybe this is a distraction or just to kind of taking some of them away. But he does want to see that new generation, I think. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is why it all kind of falls down in him kind of having to cut a corner or trying to fit in a hole that's not really there, if you get me. I do, and I think we'll cover more of this ground later. So... Abara Sand has been painted as a character who doesn't necessarily play well with others. Will she manage to cooperate with Hotar, a man who will not budge an inch from his mission and his loyalty to Doran? So I think that it's right to say that she doesn't seem to play well with others. She's the oldest Sand Snake. She seems somewhat vo volatile and is thirsty for vengeance, something George probably won't be rewarding in the long term. 
it'll be interesting to see if she will try and play games, mind games with Hotar, and whether this mission will reveal any weaknesses in Hotar's mission to simply protect, serve, and obey. Will she sort of find the chink in his armour? In his emotional armour, I mean. And the dynamics on this trip will surely be fascinating, and it's a part of the story not exposed by the TV show, so we should all be really looking forward to the Hotar chapters in Winds, I think. It's almost impossible to predict what exactly will go down and what di- what dynamics will be like between the main trio here. It's just so fascinating. Joe? Yeah, I think volatile is the word. You've really hit it there. Bara definitely is volatile. I think all three of them are going to turn out to be loose cannons, but she might be the wildest or the loosest. She has the kind of the least focus for her revenge. She just wants blood in any source. At least the other two are kind of honing in on on target. She just wants chaos. And I think she's probably the most short-sighted as well. Remember, it was her who suggested they just kill Sir Balon and all of his group while they were at Sunspear and didn't really think about any consequences or guest right or anything like that. She just wanted to do it. And she was also the one who grumbled the most when Oberyn made them swear that oath to him. So there's definitely groundwork there for not being happy with being sent on this mission, for taking that out on Hotar. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see lots of tension and just trying to test him and kind of poke the bear type thing. And that might build to a breaking point of its own, or it might coincide with a larger plan of hers that I think might come up of getting to Old Town, especially if she hears news of some big attack and this blood that she's so thirsty for going on without her, she might really, really want to be getting there. So, okay, you can use chasing Darkstar or obeying Duran as an excuse, but as close and closer you get, I think that might have been a mistake of Duran's pointing her in that direction instead of one of the other two, because, like I say, she can kind of get over there and I'm jumping ahead a little bit but we could see some very very interesting plot threads going ahead if Obara does escape or kills one of the party or just abandons the mission once that news of Old Town reaches them I'll, I'll kind of save some of that more for later mm-hmm. yeah no but I, I think all those things that you mentioned should be making us really question her devotion to this mission and to Doran, who she clearly views as weak. And I, I don't think she just changed her mind about that in a second. His come to Jesus speech at the end of the Watcher chapter might not have done much more than convince her that she would have to play along in the short term with her sisters being sent out of the picture temporarily going up to King's Landing. And I expect that those two are going to be getting up to a bit more than Doran bargained for in the capital. Because while, you know, he's talk about Obara being sent west, you know, to do her her thing, which might be short-sighted since she's said she wanted to go to Old Town. Well, these two have been sent right into the thick of exactly what they've said they wanted in that very first Captain of the Guards chapter uh, where, you know, Nymeria said uh, we could just kill Lord Tywin and his children and his grandson. Well, you know, Tywin's dead and one of his grandsons is dead. But, you know, we've we've placed this woman who's that's her stated dream right in the right place to uh, attempt to do that. And Tyene is also in a well positioned to be using her particular skills. So I don't think that uh, they're going to be kind of towing the line of what Doran's plans are. 
So definitely eyes are on Obara. I don't think that she's really all in on this mission against Darkstar. And, and if he gets some sort of major break with the Sand Snakes because they're all off, you know, doing their own thing, or if Obara ends up dead at the hands of Ariel Hota, even if it was due to her own something she did, her own actions, uh, her sister's probably aren't going to continue supporting Doran. So one way or the other, I think uh, Obara is going to kind of be the the fulcrum of a split between Doran and uh, Oberyn's daughters. I think that meeting that you were just talking about there, I think half the reason that they all kind of shut up and listened to him is because they actually thought, oh, hang on, he, he's sending us where we want to go. If I'm quiet here, I might get to go towards Old Town or go to King's Landing. I think, I think Doran kind of mistakes that for, oh, they're listening to me, they're on board, and it's actually the complete opposite. If, if we be quiet, we might actually get to do what we want instead of being sent back to the tower. So, yeah, I think you've you've hit it right there. Okay, so why don't we follow on and kind of zoom in. Obara was openly hostile towards King Tommen at the feast at Sunspear in Hotar's lone dance chapter, The Watcher. Given, as we said, she's portrayed as dangerously aggressive and headstrong, how does this bode for her interactions with Balon Swan in The Winds of Winter, Lady Gwyn? Not well. And we'll be getting back in a minute or two to the idea of this history between Dorne and its neighbors being a factor here, but I really think it can't be overstated. And with Obara having entered the story demanding to lead that attack on Old Town, I think that she's going to be front and center as the embodiment of that antagonism that's been noted so many times uh, in the main story and also in some of the Dornish point of views. Yeah, something seems to be in the setup, doesn't it? When you look at the background, I, I think that the character dynamics on this trip are going to be absolutely intriguing. We have a vengeful sand snake, a dutiful guardsman representing Doran, and another representing Cersei. What could go wrong? There are secrets and schemes and unending possibilities, I think. And they're all headed to find another figure of intrigue in the shape of Darkstar. Obara might be openly rude to Balon, or she might try and guard her contempt and try and play him in some way, or, alternatively, she flat out might try and kill him at some point, perhaps at the optimal time, and if she did try, where would this leave Ario Hotar, if he's a witness to that kind of thing? I guess, I guess I expect Ario to be put in positions of dilemma because of the dynamics between Obara and Balon, I don't know what he's going to do if these two come to blows and he's just kind of watching them. And this is where his internal monologue could at last become very, very interesting. And I've got to say, I do not expect Balon to last forever in this story. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, well, I think you've said it there. We've already said it before. Every other oath we've seen in this series has been tested by whoever's had to swear them so far. So you'd expect the same is going to happen to Ariel at some point. 
even though his words are the shortest and the simplest, they can still be dragged in multiple directions at once and they can be dragged by something Obara does. He could be presented with multiple choices of how to serve, uh, how to best serve Duran and, and what is his top priority if all scatters, which oath is he supposed to obey? Is it, does he need to protect Obara or does he need to obey Duran in capturing Darkstar? Or is there a better opportunity to serve Duran by killing Balon or is there something else entirely like you say we, we really don't know there's kind of limitless sparks that could turn this thing into flames and Obara has her name on more than a few and several of them lead directly to Balon because that's that's just a relationship that's not set up for happy times like you say especially because he's a Kingsguard so she could start saying I'm going to claim vengeance on you because you're a Lannister rep you're Cersei's guy you're a Kingsguard and remember they're, they're just not popular down in Dawn anyway in general, historically, with everything that happened when the Targaryens first arrived and then their failure to protect Elia and whatever happened to Arthur and Lewin's kind of manipulation and being forced to fight instead of protecting Elia and everything like that. Um, or to flip it, she could go with Darkstar and uh, try and persuade him to start his war again and say, hey, this is a, a good target. It's not Marcella, but it's a good target. Or she could just do it, just, just try and escape. Like There's really no guessing with her or with any of these three. Yeah, like I said, unending possibilities. That's why, Mm -hmm. I mean, how many of the characters can you say that about now now with the show having exposed some of the plot lines that will probably, you know, a lot of them will probably be there in some form. But like this trip, no one knows what's going to go down. It's great. And I I want to uh, just backtrack and give a bit of a background on Balon. So Balon Swan was visibly nervous during the feast at Doran's court, what exactly was he so nervous about that Hotar observed him sweating from the brow despite not indulging on that spicy Dornish soup? Lady Gwyn, why why was this guy sweating? I love this question because it gives me a chance to... uh talk about someone that I love to talk about. So, <laughs> one of the main things that was making him nervous was that ill-conceived plot of Cersei's, which he was an accessory to, to kill Tristane. So near the end of The Watcher, Doran tells his family that the invitation that Balon Swan brought for Doran to take up that council seat that was being held by Dorne and for Tristane and Marcella to join him in King's Landing for a visit was Roose. He continues, Tristane was never meant to reach King's Landing. On the road back, somewhere in the Kingswood, Sir Balon's party will be attacked by outlaws and my son will die. I am asked to court only so that I may witness this attack with my own eyes and thereby absolve the queen of any blame. Oh, and these outlaws? They'll be shouting, half man, half man, as they attack. Sir Balon may even catch a quick glimpse of the imp though no one else will. So the very funny thing about this plot is it is utterly pointless because Cersei is so incredibly wrong about everything. She believes that Oberyn abetted Tyrion in killing Joffrey, uh, or at the very least his defense of Tyrion made him somehow complicit. She also thinks that Tyrion might be hiding out in Dorne, that the, the Martells are shielding him somehow. So that's where you get this half-man, half-man element. So you get a plot that is meant to be simultaneously vengeance, 
and a pointed message, but it's vengeance for something that never happened and a message that would never strike home because Tyrion isn't in Dorne and he never was. So had this succeeded, it would only have just made, well, and it has, even though it hasn't succeeded, all she's accomplished really is making the diplomatic situation with Dorne worse than ever. So um, classic Cersei and... Balon was clearly in on this plan uh, and he might have objected to it on some level. It's still a classic instance, or it would be a classic instance of uh, I was only following orders, which is never a good defense when faced with the angry relatives of the child you plan to kill. Yeah, dead on. I think you've completely answered it all for us there. I do think uh, some of the elements of why he's uncomfortable is that fish out of water idea. And some of it is also like we just spoke about the general attitude towards the Kingsguard in this part of the world. And that's at the best of times, let alone now with everything that's going on. But the majority is that Balon's he's pretty smart. He's pretty aware. He, he knows what's going on. He knows what the attitude is going to be like. And he knows what he's bringing down here. He was smart enough to sense the, the spite in those sugary skull things he knew what game Ariane was trying to play and he, he knew how to get rid of that. And also, if Aereo is sizing up Balon for potential combat, why wouldn't we assume that it works both ways and Balon's doing the same and that's making him sweat because he thinks, oh, that guy probably looks pretty good and pretty tough to kill. But most of all, it's that he knows he's in a room or possibly a country full of people who already don't like him and now he's come to deliver this news that could make them very, very angry and turn them into much more active enemies much more quickly. Uh, I like to think that he was kind of hoping Duran would only agree to give up Marcella because, okay, that's not what Cersei wants and she'll be annoyed, but I'd rather go back to an annoyed, inept Cersei than start off this war and have to agree to uh, kill a child on the way home. We, like you say, Lady Gwyn, he's, that's not a defence because he doesn't want to. If you still do it, that doesn't matter. That's still, uh, that still makes you bad, and I think he's aware of that. He'd probably rather not have to kill a child on the way home if he can help it. So being aware that that might be agreed to in any th- any second is would be enough to make me sweat as well. And that's just in the actual act of having to kill a child, let alone the ramifications of I might start a war with a, what I'm about to offer here. So I'm, I'm very interested in that internal war as well and what he thinks on Cersei's orders and how far he'd be willing to go. And maybe we'll see that play out in wins as well. We don't know. We'll see what happens. Okay, so why don't we kind of round up the Balon chat with this. What role will Balon play in the quest to find Darkstar? And what will it be like for a swan to be tracking a Dornishman on behalf of Doran Martell? Joe? Well, I guess I can kind of continue it with that question we'd asked answered because... Balon actually serves as a really comparison to Aerys as well, who who came before him. Like I say, Aerys was nearly a good guy back in King's Landing because he at least objected to hitting Sansa Stark, and that is a pretty brave move when Joffrey's your boss, but he did still hit her in the end, so it doesn't matter, you're still bad. Now, Balon is, is nearly a good guy, or one we like, we like in general. He's better than most of the Kingsguard we meet. He refused to condemn Tyrion any further than necessary, didn't embellish on the truth, and he stuck up for Jaime when Loras was being a bit of an ass when he first met Jaime. We know he's a good fighter from the Blackwater, he's definitely brave, but then again he also takes part in this plot with Tristane, so he's also not a good guy. And yeah, we can, like you say, Lady Gwen, technically they're following orders, 
And that's all we've seen Aereo do so far. He's just got a better boss than Joffrey and Cersei, but we don't know he's morally good. We only know that he follows order. We only, we, he only follows order, sorry. We only suspect he's good. So if Duran orders Aereo at some point to have to execute Marcella or a bar or do something else not good, and, and maybe that includes uh, doing something dishonourable with Sabalon, just to bring it back to the question a little bit, we don't know if Aereo would obey or what kind of conflict that's going to turn up. That's a really good point. One of the things I'm very interested to see play out are these historical parallels that I mentioned before, uh, that long history of antagonism between Dorne and its neighbors. In general, outsiders have utterly failed to bring the Dornish to heel, very often not coming back at all from ill-fated missions into the heart of Dorne. And I'm thinking of Lionel Tyrell and Lord Corgyle Scorpions, for instance, and other stories like this. In separate passages, both Gerald Dane and Aerys Oakhart make note of this history of tension, and it's mentioned elsewhere often enough, uh, especially with regard to the Dornish marches, that I'd be surprised if it doesn't come into play in the narrative. So expect Swan's anxiety to grow and grow as this group travels, especially if Obara is openly hostile, and if this history is pointedly raised in his presence, I'd say that'll be a red flag of something bad about to happen. (laughs) And so I want to get back to what we're talking about Obara and Hotar and get more, a bit more predictive, guys, with the Winds of Winter. How do we see it playing out between those two? What exactly are the possibilities for their interactions during the next novel, as you see it, Lady Gwyn? Well, we've been hinting at conflict between the two, or more precisely, George in our opinion, or in my opinion, George has been hinting at conflict between the two. We also wondered about Hota having a secret mission, and it occurs to me that his secret mission, or at least one uh, maybe private directive from the boss, could simply be to ensure that Obara doesn't get out of control. For Doran, I'd expect the ideal outcome would be for Balon Swan to send some messages back to King's Landing, telling that the mission has been successful, they've captured Darkstar, or at least maybe some something, a raven extolling the cooperation of the Dornish and how wonderful this all is, uh, before any potential plot to do away with him actually plays out. So if Obara endangers that or any of uh, Doran's possibly secret goals by causing trouble with Balon Swan, I think we can expect some trouble from the captain. <laughs> Let me, I kind of zoom out before I zoom back in to Obara. The, the Sand Snakes in general, I, we kind of mentioned it earlier, but I think they could really serve as an ironic end to Duran's steady hand. He's waited all these years and been as careful as he can be and waited right for the, the perfect moment. And then just when the, he thinks the finish line is in sight, he might have cut a corner and unleashed these three people that he really doesn't have any control over or doesn't really understand. These three, these three women who are not their father, like we talked about earlier, they didn't experience the same things as Oberyn and Duran. They're not, they don't have the same priorities. And again, we mentioned earlier that there's theories on how each of the Sand Snakes could really kind of end up doing the opposite of what Duran wanted and making everything that much worse. And Obara is one of those who could easily 
uh, mess up this whole thing, whether on the journey or whether she gets to Old Town, like I say, I would really like that if that does happen. If she kind of runs into a fleeing Sam and Gilly and maybe Sorella is there and we get that connection. I'm going to assume she wouldn't be bringing Hotar with her because they were really abandoning Dawn to zero POVs and I don't know how much uh, likelihood there is in that, but I would definitely like to see that. Uh, again, because Sam is a Reachman, his surname is Tali, so there's that conflict between them as well with Dornish. There's lots and lots of different possibilities for uh, what she's going to be getting up to and wins, but I think we kind of agree they're all pretty much based around conflict slash messing, messing things up, um, which pretty much is kind of what we think for every wins plot, I think. So that that fits pretty well. I mean, it fits Dawn so well because it's it's teed up to be such a fragile piece and Doran himself is so fragile. It's just written into the Dornish story that, you know, everything's on a knife edge and you've got Abara running around. So what's 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 going to happen? I don't know. So I, I think what you're saying, Joe, the notion of the Sand Snakes being the sort of ruin of Doran's plans is a really interesting one. And it could have some merit to it. And I think they could even eventually be his personal ruin, the Sand Snakes. They're in the story to contrast with Doran's unending patience to strike at the right time. And I don't see how the two attitudes reconcile in the long term. And that's even with the knowledge of Doran's true secret yearning for fire and blood. If the time is right for Dawn to raise its spears and Duran still remains cautious, what then? What the Sand Snake's going to do? Abara could play nice with Ario on his journey only to turn on him later when he's with Duran. Who knows? Nothing like this is out of the question with the Sand Snakes. They are a real Winds of Winter wild card, in my opinion. And Ario is the only POV that could witness this kind of coup as long as Ariane stays where she is. So the, the Sand Snakes are not passive characters. They will be driving the plot in an active way, as is the design of their characters. And I think this will be especially true of Obara, the one we're likely to see the most in the upcoming novel. I expect Ario's dutiful resolve to be thoroughly tested by Obara in some way or another, or perhaps many ways. Okay, do you guys agree with this? <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I think your point about it just being fragile, the whole realm, the whole kingdom in general, that does get brought up, but no one really focuses on it. And I think that could easily be another thing that just kind of slips in when Duran's taken his eye off the ball a little bit. We have the trope of lots of people uh, kind of waiting and waiting and waiting for their shot and being really patient and smart. And then there's some catalyst that just, again, makes them take their eye off the ball for just a second and they ruin all of it. And we might have seen that already with the Sand Snakes, but you'd think the catalyst for Duran would actually be the news of Quentin, how he's going to react to that. And that being like, okay, I'm done waiting now. I'm not waiting around anymore. I'm going to do something. So what is he going to do? After that, how's he going to top laying the sand snakes out? And maybe it is uh, kind of turning his back on Dawn at the wrong moment and, all, and they all start getting involved. Ariane told us about all these different lords who they're going to get active at some point. There's no, there's no kind of um, 
unactive characters in this world. There's no passive characters. They all want something. So if they sense blood in the water, that could easily explode into a whole new plot thread that George can garden away at. True words. And so on to our final question. Geraldine, this dark star, is ostensibly the focus of their mission. How will they approach this quest? Will they find him? Assuming they do, and that Obara survives to that point, do we see any potential for these two characters, who are both noted to be extremely angry, forging an alliance of sorts? I know you have a lot of thoughts about this, Lady Gwyn. Yeah. Do either of you have thoughts before I... You go ahead. Okay. Well, I would not be surprised if this group first stops at Starfall en route to High Hermitage. So in terms of kind of structural, uh, maybe Area 1 opens with them at Starfall, but that's got to be our, our window to Starfall, which George has been kind of purposefully holding back for all these years, but we know we're going to find out more about it someday. It's almost certainly got to come from Ariel's point of view, I, I think. So assuming they do all make it to a showdown with Gerald Dane, whether they find him at High Hermitage or somewhere else, you have to ask yourself who Obara Sand is more likely to side with. A fellow Dornishman who advocates the same sort of approach that she herself has been crying out for. They're basically on the same page. If you look at what Obara asked for in in the Captain of the Guards chapter and the things that uh, Gerald Dane was saying in The Queenmaker? Or would she side with a knight who serves the hated Lannisters, uh, was recently implicated in a covert mission to kill her cousin, a young boy? Uh, yeah, I think we have to consider the potential for some sort of alliance between these two characters with such similarities. That said... I'm not going to say too much more about that because uh, in a few weeks' time, we're going to be doing a separate dedicated live stream all about Darkstar. So save the rest of it for that. <laughs> yeah, we've got, a, we've got a live stream coming up all about the Danes and Darkstar. So I think there's a good segue into the outro. Hope you've enjoyed the stream. Joe, Sir Buckley... Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's brilliant. Why don't you tell us what you're up to with the Isle of Faces podcast that you guys can subscribe to right now? What's going on? Well, we are still rolling with Valoridis, with the guys over at History of Westeros. We are streaming towards the end of A Dance of Dragons, finally. We're really getting into the important bits of the most recent episode I've had to write turned out something like 70 pages long in Google Docs because there's the last Fion chapter and Danny rides a dragon and all the wildlings are coming through the wall so it's all getting very very important and we've got uh, five episodes left and then this grand old project will be done all the scraps will be scrolled so my fingers and wrists are looking forward to that and I might even get to sleep this year possibly so you can find me over there if you're ever looking for me Okay, well, I want to say uh, say thank you to everyone for uh, being here with us today. Don't forget, if you're out there in the chat or if you're watching right now, to like and subscribe. We will 
be here again for another streams of winter live stream January 30th that's two weeks from today at which point we're going to be going a little bit deeper on House Martell and Dorn uh, with Kyle from Blood of the Podcast who's also a returning guest so we definitely look forward to that once again Thank you all for being here, and uh, hello to people in the future who are watching the pre-recorded version of this or listening to the podcast version. Thank you as well. We do definitely appreciate you all. Yeah, thanks, guys, for all your support of these live streams so far. There will be more, believe us. And a special shout-out to our chat room mods. You guys do a great job for us. Thank you. And thanks to each and every one of our patrons who support us. If you want to support us as a patron too, check out our Patreon campaign, which includes all manner of incentives, now including access to our new Discord forum, where we play a Song of Ice and Fire games, talk about a Song of Ice and Fire, and also talk about our pets and our cooking and all manner of things with our patrons. So we might see you there, be a patron and you can join our Discord. Anyway... We'll see you on January the 30th at 5 p.m. ET. Goodbye, guys. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.